Okay, are your brains filled with the laws of Israel? Because your heads look bigger. (laughs) I just thought studying this, oh, my head must be this big. Thanks for doing that as well. We've been looking at the children of Israel about to step into the promised land. God is reminding them, here's how I want you to behave once you get there. And we've already looked at his laws about leadership and being separate and about justice and about worship. And today, you read and studied all these laws and thought, okay, these don't relate to each other in any way. But they do. They're all about love. They are all about love. They're connected in that way. You know, I don't know if you know the title of your outline, but Dianne Warwick, Dionne Warwick got a lot of things wrong. How many of you were, were Dionne Warwick fans? Yeah, she is, she is great. Anyway, she got some things wrong, mostly her psychic friends that would come on in the middle of a great late-night movie. I don't know if she's still into that. Is she still alive? Yeah? Okay. But one thing she got right was when she sang, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And love was God's intention for our world from the very beginning of creation because God is love. Look on your verse sheet, 1 John. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And I think that first part is so true. We know about God's love. We rely on it. All your praises today were a reflection of how we rely on the love of God for his intervening and directing and guiding and listening and um, just being that in our life, that, that guide of love in our life. And we know that his acts of creation were acts of love. And we know that his calling to Abraham and his descendants to become his treasure possession, that was an act of love. And we know by the fact that he sent them loving laws and he sent them prophets and judges. These were also acts of love to bring back the stubborn people that he was calling his own. And then, when the world was as dark in rebellion as it could be, God took his son, who was already in the glory that belonged to him, and sent him into this very dark place to die for our sins, the ultimate act of love. One day, when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men. My Redeemer is he, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. One day he came into your life. And when that happened, All of a sudden, off of your heart, a veil was lifted, and for the first time in your life, you got it. You realized life is about loving. It's about loving my creator, and it's about loving God. It's not about me. It's an interesting 
realization. And the fact that the rest of the world is kind of out of control just lets you know they haven't gotten that yet. They don't understand that. So Dionne Warwick was right. The world needs now is love, my love, your love. We are the instruments of God in this world, and we are instruments of his love. Look at 2 John 1. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now, these children of Israel were also to walk in love and be instruments of God's love. Their whole nation was founded on the love of God. They were to reflect who God really was. And if they wanted to be blessed as a nation, they were going to have to love each other within that nation. But God knew sin and selfishness would often make the priority of love go by the wayside. And because of that, he created many laws. And not only would they protect people who were not being loved like they were supposed to be loved, it was also to teach these people what love is supposed to look like. How would they know if God didn't create laws that would show them, here's who I am, I'm going to show my character, my loving character through these laws, and this is how you should behave with each other. They are not laws of restriction. They are laws of love because God is love. And you can take a deep breath because we're not going to go through all those laws you just studied. I just picked four of them. And I'm going to relate the laws that had to do with the family into today the family of God all of you in this room. And I tried to be real creative and change the font on your outline with each law, and I look at it, and you can't even tell I did that. So I didn't do a good job. But if you look real close, the fonts are supposed to be different. So read with me law number one. When a man wheels his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn. Okay, right off the bat, Israel is going to make this love thing difficult. And here's why. In the book of Genesis, God established marriage between one man and one woman. But the Jews have already adopted the pattern of Eastern nations all surrounding them. In fact, we only have to go four chapters in the book of Genesis. We meet a guy named Lamech a rebel against God, and he's found his second wife. So it didn't take long for polygamy to enter into uh, the Jewish customs. The outcome of multiple wives is favoritism, and there is not one loving thing about that. I read a book this summer called Escaped, and it was by a woman who escaped that Warren Jeffs Fundamental Mormon thing. Okay, if you want a book that's just going to make you tense up like this, to it was such a book of chaos in the family that I got about three-fourths of the way through and just threw it down and said, I, I am so uptight and nervous. I can't stand to read another page. Because guess what family life was like? They try to tell you we love each other. It was a wreck. These wives were jealous of each other, envious, evil, lied, 
manipulated, didn't care about each other's children. This woman that wrote the book escaped from all that. So she knows pretty much firsthand about it. Her husband, I think at the end, had five wives. She was definitely the youngest. He was a much older man. And she knew right off the bat who the favorite wife was. I mean, the minute she stepped into that school, the favorite wife made sure she knew, for one thing. But every meal almost at night, the favorite wife and the husband were going out to dinner. And the other four wives and the 38 children were all just trying to scramble, trying to come up with something to eat. And one time they actually took this trip, and this is when I had to put the book down, because I was just, they had to rent a bus because they decided to go on a vacation. Of course, the favorite wife and the husband get to sit in the front and drink their coffee. The rest of the bus is chaos and things are being thrown around. They stopped to eat in a parking lot for breakfast, which, by the way, this woman who wrote the book, had stayed up two nights in a row making biscuits for enough children to last the five days of the vacation so every morning someone could eat at least one biscuit. She's making homemade (laughs) biscuits. And you see them in the parking lot, milk spilled, kids running wild, the four wives running around, and there in the restaurant next to the parking lot, through the glass window, is the favorite wife, And the husband drinking their coffee and eating their breakfast. Not a loving situation. This is where we find the Jews. When you have more than one wife, there are unloving things that are going to happen. Compare that to what Paul says husbands should be doing in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Husband ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now God understood that the Jewish nation would jeopardize this love between one man and one woman, and so this law that we just read, was to protect an unloved son of an unloved wife. Now, the reason the firstborn son was special is because of this. At Passover, you remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. In Egypt, at Passover, the death angel comes, the last plague, and all the firstborn male children die from this death angel. But the children of Israel put the blood of the lamb on the door, which represented the blood of Christ, and the death angel passed over. In honor of this gracious miracle, God commanded that all firstborn male Jewish children would be dedicated to him. And remember, God called Israel his firstborn son. And so their firstborn sons were to be dedicated and redeemed for God. Now, in order to redeem them, they weren't going to sacrifice them, of course, so they would consecrate a Levite for each firstborn child, meaning that they would be set apart for God. Families were to offer special offerings at the birth of their first son. And remember when Mary and Joseph took Jesus, their first son, to the temple. Look on your verse sheet at Luke 2. 
When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, this would have been 40 days after Mary had Jesus. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now this tells us something else about Jesus and his family. The true uh, sacrifice was a lamb. If you were very poor, you could offer a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And that's what they did in obedience to presenting their firstborn son to God. The firstborn would receive a double portion of their father's estate. And so this law we just read made sure that the firstborn son, carrying all that God had poured into what this meant spiritually in a family, that he would get what he deserved from God and that he would be blessed uh, by God and protected, even if the dad didn't love him like he was supposed to. Now, I wanted to talk about the family of God today. Did you know we are called God's firstborn today? And we also receive a double portion of an inheritance. When you were born again, that happened when you were cleansed from your sin, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, and when you had that new birth, you were called the firstborn of God. Look on your verse sheet, Hebrews 12. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men, made perfect. On your outline, as God's firstborn, we are all equally promised his generous portion of heaven and righteousness. What an inheritance we have as God's firstborn. And aren't you glad that God doesn't have a favorite? Aren't you glad he doesn't love some of us more than other ones? That he's not going to give the ones he prefers a bigger inheritance than some of the rest of us. But we are all equally needy. We are all equally undeserving. We all come to the Father through the Son, not by our works. And so we all equally receive the amazing portion of eternity and being made righteous in Christ. So when we in this room look at each other, we do it seeing each other through the impartial eyes of God. We show no favoritism. I think that uh, the church may be one of the only places in the world where people are accepted, not because of what's external, but because of what's internal. And I would have to say the church must be the only place. And it must be a place where we look at each other for what is in our heart and we do not choose favorites by external uh, things that we have that are a part of us. I knew a pastor who befriended a man in his church. The pastor considered this, this man, I'll call him Joe, considered Joe his friend, But the man wasn't very involved at church. He didn't really know many people. He did not hold any position. He was not on staff. He was not anyone people made their way to. 
And so when this pastor got ill, uh, this man was very sad about it. But when the pastor died, his wife called Joe and said, you know, he had you written down to be a pallbearer. And it was the first time the man realized what the church really is all about. He got to carry the pastor's coffin because he realized there really is no favoritism in the body of Christ. Look at 1 Timothy 5. Very simply says, do nothing out of favoritism. Okay, let's look at the next law. A father and mother are to take a rebellious son and bring him to the elders for judgment. Okay, the last law was about protecting the firstborn when a father's love is absent. This law is about protecting parents and the Jewish community when a child is displaying no love for his parents or that community. There's two issues here, the welfare of the family and the welfare of the community. And in Israel, they went so hand in hand. The health of the nation of Israel was going to be dependent on um, the health of a family unit. And so if there was a sin involved, it would trickle down and affect the whole nation. Respect for parents was vital to them. The fifth command was honor your father and your mother. And I think it's pretty true today that a lot of the woes in America come from a family where the children don't respect their parents and there is not, uh, it's not functioning as it should. In Israel, uh, one of the dangers was that the sins of that child could spread to other children in the family or outside of the family. The family's name, their property, their spiritual health could be jeopardized. And this is a child that has ignored discipline, disgraced his parents, dishonored his community, day after day refusing to work, reveling in being drunk, a threat to his family and neighbors. And so then the parents bring him to the elders. Now, did you notice they both have to go? You couldn't just be angry at your child one afternoon and pull him by the ear and drag him to the elders. Because if you didn't have your spouse with you, that was just a sign that you lost your temper. You had to come with your spouse. You guys planned this. This was your next step. Now, we all think this is the most horrible thing we've ever heard. When I read that, and you picture your own children, you just think, I might want to, I feel like doing that, but don't know if I'd do it. What would most normally happen when you drug your child down and stood him before the elders of your town that everyone loved and respected and revered because of their walk with God? Nine times out of ten, what is that child going to do? They're going to repent. They're going to turn from their evil ways in the presence of the elders and the stones that they see lying on the ground around the elders' feet. It was a way to bring that child back into a loving relationship with his family and his community. If he still disobeyed, then he was choosing to die. I also think this law was a great wake-up call for anybody else, any other child who thought, I think I'll be rebellious. They would take a look at this procedure and think, I I think I won't. I think the 
us is a little bit of a picture of church discipline today. If we know of someone in the church who is openly, flagrantly in rebellion, and a person, first one person has approached this person, and then more people have gone, and repeatedly they've begged this person to turn from this particular sin in their life, And if they refuse, then they are to be brought before the elders of this church for discipline. And that may mean being dismissed for a while from being a part of the body of Christ until they choose to repent. On your outline, as part of the community of Christ today, we have a spiritual responsibility to uphold each other's faith in love. Just like this boy, we belong to each other, we can affect each other, and someone who lives within a church body and is unrepentant and rebellious against God is basically saying to everyone in the church, I don't love you. And every time we turn our backs on that individual, we are saying back to him, we don't love you. It is our job to care about each other's faith and the health of the church that God loves. Paul speaks about this. The church in Corinth had allowed sexual immorality in their church. And for some reason, Paul mentions that they were even proud of it. A man had taken his father's wife. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But are we not to judge those inside? God will judge the outside. Expel the wicked man from you. This sounds just as harsh as uh, what they did with this wayward son, but it is less loving to allow someone to live in blatant sin, to watch them destroy themselves, to watch their family suffer, and to watch the people of the church be affected and suffer because of that as well. God disciplines those he loves. We are supposed to follow his example. Look at Hebrews 12. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I thought about this story uh, many years ago. I went down uh, with a friend to visit someone, I think it was in Houston, Yeah, it was. And this family had a little three-year-old boy named Zach. And one day we'd all eaten in a restaurant together, and then we were all standing out in the parking lot talking and happened to glance down at Zach, who was being very quiet, standing next to us. And when we looked at him, his face was blue. He had taken one of those peppermints when you leave the restaurant, and it had stopped about right about here. And so my friend was a nurse. She picked Zach up. She grabbed him right where you need to, so his legs are off the ground. And she is doing this to him, giving him the Heimlich maneuver. And he's, he's trying to fight her. And so his body's shaking, his legs are going. 
Finally, out pops that candy. We're so excited and happy. The color comes back in his face. We all, as adults, think, oh, that was, that was close. But we kind of forgot about little Zach. And so we're all talking about the time, and we get in the van. And we've been driving for a while, and it got real quiet. And then Zach's mom said, Zach, did you know what Miss Deb was doing to you back there in the parking lot? He got real quiet, and he said, squeezing my guts out. <laughs> we thought how frightened he was that someone out of the blue just picked him up and was squeezing him and shaking him around. I thought, this reminds me of this, that, that God says discipline hurts. Sometimes people are standing there in front of us turning blue because they're losing their spiritual life, and we have to shake them up. We have to pick them up, and it's painful. Like this verse says, it's painful at first. But later on, it says that a harvest of righteousness will come. That's our job, because that's loving. That's what we do. Our motive is love. And did you notice in this verse, Paul is saying, it is our job to judge each other. Make sure you don't have a log in your own eye first. It's not our judge, our job to judge the outside world who doesn't know God. Paul says, God is their judge, but you uphold each other's faith in the church. Next law. If a man marries a woman and divorces her, and she remarries, but her second husband divorces her or dies, she may not remarry her first husband. Okay, just reading that law lets you know there's a problem here about marriage. When a man doesn't love his wife, like Paul talked about in Ephesians, when he does not love his wife like Christ loved the church, all kinds of evil problems occur. Why the first husband divorces this wife is not very clear. We can rule out adultery because if it was adultery, they would have stoned her to death. This word uh, indecent means nakedness of a thing. So there was something exposed that was indecent. And I don't know what that means, but I do know this. It didn't warrant a divorce. They figured out ways to divorce each other for things much less than this. It's very possible that this law was intended to preserve the second marriage and to protect the rejected, unloved wife. Once she entered a second marriage, that first husband could not come around and interfere and try to reclaim this woman. Women were not to be a piece of property to be passed around. It could discourage the easy transfer of a woman from one person to another, from man to man, which the Bible tells us would result in her defilement. This is a term used for adultery. Men were called to love their wives. This law would make them take note of that before they easily dismissed her. And it would also elevate the status of women. Jesus loved women. Jesus changed the way the world looked at women. 
He valued them. He came to this earth through a woman named Mary. And when he was leaving this earth, even on a cross of great pain, his thought was, how can I take care of my mother, Mary, before I go? Women ministered to him and supported him during his ministry. He loved to spend time with Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene. He allowed women to listen to him teach and be a part of his miracles. He let Mary anoint his feet with oil. He approached the Samaritan woman at the well. He blew away his disciples when he did that because the Samaritans were dogs and a female Samaritan was worse than that. And yet, Jesus took the time to disclose to her who he really was. The very first person to see Jesus resurrected was Mary Magdalene, a woman. And the very first person that had the amazing job to spread the good news that Jesus is alive. He gave that job to a woman. And never did he see a woman as property to be passed around. Because of Jesus' behavior toward women, Christianity has a unique attitude about women. On your outline, women should receive the love and the honor all believers receive as equal heirs in Christ. Galatians 4.26 is not on my, our sheets. I guess it's 326. I'm sorry. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Lydia was used in the Christian church to promote and establish the church in Philippi. Aquila and his wife Priscilla were teachers and evangelists for the church and church planners. And at the end of Romans, Paul says, Greet Tryphena, greet Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who works hard for the Lord. And Rufus's mother who was like a mother to me. And if you read the end of almost every one of Paul's letters, he lists the women that were instrumental in establishing the church of God on this earth. The Mormon faith, the Muslim faith, the Buddhist faith, and other faiths do not treat women as God expects us to. The Christian faith must treat women just like Jesus did, be it inside of a marriage or outside of a marriage. Next law. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, the deceased husband's brother is to marry the widow and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. This is called a leveret marriage. You've heard of that before um, from the story of Ruth and L-E-V-I, Levi in Latin means brother-in-law, so that's where it gets the name Leveret Marriage. The purpose of this was to ensure that if a man died and he did not have an heir, he still could have the possibility of an heir, and then that son that would be born would inherit the deceased man's property. And then the dead man's name would not be blotted out of Israel, But I think it was also about God's covenant with Abraham. 
If you remember, when God came to Abraham, he made these promises and he said, and these are also for the descendants that will come after you. So every Jew participated in the covenant relationship in his lifetime and knew that there was always a future for the family of God because of this covenant. So even though after his death, he wouldn't be participating in in person, he knew the covenant promises were continuing in the family that he left behind. So without an heir to the covenant promises, then that... uh, Those promises stopped with the last male in that family. This law was an act of love for the deceased brother and for his wife that he left behind. But we see there were some conditions to it. First of all, these brothers had to be living together, and one would be married and one would be single. So they may not necessarily be in the same home, but they lived in the same area. And so... The protection there was that they would not be strangers to each other. They knew each other. There was a family unit there that they were a part of. Secondly, the brother would have no son of his own. If they had a son, there would not be a need uh, for this marriage. And it was actually against the law if children were involved in remarriage. So that was not something that uh, would have worked. So if the brother had died with the son, the wife would not have married this brother-in-law. And then thirdly, the brother must be willing. If he was not willing, the wife would take him to the elders at the gate. The elders were busy. I sometimes think, was there a line? Did they take tickets? I do not know. Go to the gate. She would plead her case. The elders would try to reason with this man. But an unloving man... A selfish man might not care that much about his brother. And he might not care about preserving his name because he might care about his personal gain. And so he would think, well, if no heir is born to my brother, then maybe I will inherit that property because the wife could not. And he would also think, if I married her and we had a son, then he gets that property, and I wouldn't get that property, and it would be my brother's name. It wouldn't be my name that he would carry. And so then he would choose to turn his back on his brother and turn his back on the wife, leaving her unprotected and pretty much poor. But he couldn't do that before he faced the humiliation of being spit in the face and the removal of his sandal. The spitting in the face, we don't need to explain. That shows you're pretty mad, pretty disgusted. To take off your shoe, when they would do that in any kind of court cases or before the elders, they were saying, I relinquish my rights to this property. And they would pass a sandal to the other if they were buying property, etc. So in this case, taking off the shoe meant he was abandoning his duty to claim what belonged to his brother. If the brother married later and started his own family, his house would be known as the house of the barefooted one. This would be a stigma that they would have to live with for their whole marriage, this family, because he refused to honor his dead brother. He had therefore brought dishonor to his own family. We don't have this rule today. The principle, though, is very alive. 
It is absolutely expected from God's children that we never turn our backs on the needs of others in the family and in the family of God. On your outline, God expects us to always have two sandals on our feet. We never abandon our responsibilities to each other. Because we don't want the outside world to ever say, look at them, they, they, they're Christians, but you know, they're barefooted people. They turn their backs on each other. They ignore each other when there's need. needs. They don't really love each other. The dishonor then would go to the family of God. Look at Galatians 6. Carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. I've talked about Ted's dad, Charlie, a few times, but his illustration was so perfect. You just have to hear the story again. Uh, He was a great example of this. Charlie lived a very typical life of someone who is disconnected from God, kind of lived for himself, um, uh, divorced his wife when Ted and his brother and sisters were pretty young. But it all caught up with him when he hit retirement age because his health started to deteriorate. He didn't have anybody. He was lonely. He was disillusioned. He was pretty depressed. And one day he was sitting in our backyard. I still remember it. We had a friend who was over who was about to go do a trip to Mexico. He would do mission trips there. And so he asked Charlie if he wanted to come with him. Now, Charlie had nothing to do. So he was up for an adventure. He said, sure. In the car he goes with our friend. And he did not come back really for years. Because once he got to Mexico and he started seeing, he was in a very poverty-stricken little town called Jailitla. He saw the extreme poverty of these people and God used that to begin to break his heart. And for the first time in his life, he understood because he always thought, God can't love me, I've messed up too much. But for the first time in his life, he let God's love touch his heart. And just like we talked about at the beginning, that veil came off of his heart and he looked around and he said, i got to love these people. I'm going to love these people. And he bought a building and he went to all the churches and he got the names of their poorest people and he started buying rice and tortilla mix and started hung up this sign and every Sunday he had a mile long line of people who climbed from out of the hills to get their food that would last them for many weeks. But this was the neat thing about Charlie. That wasn't enough for him. He put televisions along the wall. Once you got to a certain place you could sit in chairs, wait to get up to get your food. He put televisions along the wall that showed the gospel of Jesus Christ in Spanish, so they would all understand it. And guess what? They had nowhere to go. They sat for hours (laughs) watching those played over and over and over again. He had to come home the last couple years of his life, which killed him. His heart never left Mexico. He was a different man. You know why? He had figured out his purpose. 
It was about being an instrument of God's love. And so nobody could ever look at him and think, he just wears one sandal. Charlie spent his life, those last ten years, loving needy people. And we got to see him those last two years a lot. He had a whole new countenance. And his favorite saying was, thank you, Jesus. And he would carry around (laughs) papers. He had Cassie and Ted write sheets that we would print that said, thank you, Jesus. And if you took him somewhere, he would pass you one. Ted would take him to Starbucks, and he'd say, that little girl in the pigtail, she needs one of these. And Ted would push him in his wheelchair over, and she would get the sheet that says, thank you, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13. No matter what I say, what I do, what I believe, I am bankrupt without love. What are we doing being unloving when we have been loved beyond our deepest understanding? Jesus all the day long is my joy and my song. Oh, that all his salvation might see. He has loved me, I cried. He has suffered and died to redeem even rebels like me. Let's pray. Your love, O God, is so vast. We thank you and praise you for it. And may you continually lift that veil off our hearts of selfishness that we may be your instruments of love to everybody around us. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.